it going, everyone? Welcome to the Grindhouse Podcast with Dave and Jude this week. What? As we talked about last week, Matt is currently, at the time of this recording, in the middle of his bachelor party, which I imagine is a LAN party or potentially some tabletop game. Sweet. Maybe Dungeons and Dragons, and this is no shade being thrown because I wish I was doing that. Yeah. But as it is... It's me and Jude. We are currently in Hotlanta, Georgia. ATL. Jude is actually wearing, from head to toe, Georgia red. Go dogs. He's got a Georgia University hat. UGA. He's got a Georgia Bulldog shirt. Between the hedges. And matching pants. Ring the bell. Other shorts, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so uh, since Matt is currently occupied doing whatever people do during bachelor parties that are, is awesome and... <laughs> Uh, Jude and I is gonna we're gonna we're gonna hold down the four. And for those of you who maybe follow my Twitter or just listened to us last week, Jude and I just finished a three-day drive from Los Angeles, California to Atlanta, Georgia, for a show that we're gonna be working on together. Um, but we saw some cool things along the way. Yeah, we sure did. So uh, we ma- we made the determination that since we had to make such a long drive, and you know we're gonna be here for a long time, so we had a car full of stuff. That we were going to make the most of this trip and see a few sights along the way. Mm. Now, uh, Jude, you've been on the show a few times now. Yeah, three or four, maybe. You are the uh, you're the Carol Burnett to to uh, Matt's Johnny Carson. You step in when it's time to fill in <laughs> fill in his shoes. But you are a big Tim Burton fan. Huge Tim Burton fan. In fact, as a director yourself of two feature films, we'll, we'll talk about that later. One of your big inspirations is Mr. Burton and his sort of quirky sensibilities when it comes to art and filmmaking. And so in sunny, beautiful Las Vegas, mm-hmm. there was a Tim Burton exhibit that you alerted me to. Yeah, it's really great. It's called Lost Vegas, and it's there till I believe, April 12th. So if you're in Vegas or passing through Vegas, go check it out. It's really awesome. But basically, you know, Tim grew up in Burbank. He talks about that a lot. Um, so Vegas was only a four-hour ride from where he grew up, and it's where, like, his parents would go. And this is back in the day. And uh, it heavily influenced him as a kid and then as a teenager and young adult. And he credits some of his visionary uh, things to that. So it was an, his homage and ode to Vegas. He put his own little spin on it, and it's in the uh, Neon Museum where they have all the old signs from, like, the Sahara and Dunes and all those casinos that got torn down. What I find really interesting is that so much of, you know, you think about Tim Burton as sort of the master of macabre. Yeah. But a lot of his influence is actually very sunny, bright. Yeah. And and very much the absurdity of the sunny and the bright. But it's so interesting to me that a guy who sort of relishes in giant eyes and striped clothes and sand snakes and dark shadows would find um, a really fond memory in Las Vegas, especially in that time. Yeah, it's great. Um, they have two exhibits there. One is called Brilliant, and it's basically an audio-visual musical uh, thing that's at nighttime, and you're with all these old old neon signs, and he projects on them, and then it has like an homage to Mars Attacks at the end and stuff like that. And then, of course, there's the uh, indoor thing that leads out into the, what they call the Boneyard, where all the old big signs are out there. Uh, the Boneyard for the Bone Daddy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> bone Daddy. Um, and then, and then Tim has put a couple of his, uh, pieces in there, uh, as you're walking through, they're kind of hidden and then you, you fall upon them and you're like, Oh, there's Stainboy or, Oh, there's Mars attacks guys or there's whatever. So it's really awesome. Really cool. Right. So if you guys are following my Twitter, I've posted some of these photos at Dave Escudo 
And um, it's cool because, like, yeah, you walk out, right? You, well, the first thing you see when you walk through the exhibit is all these, like, hand-painted and drawn, like, sketches and, yeah. you know, sample poetry that he's written. Some of which would have made it into the Melancholy Tales of Oyster Boy. Yeah. For those of you guys who remember that at your local Hot Topic in the early 2000s. <laughs> but um, you see a lot of these, this really personal art, you know, very you know, samples that that led to the final product. And then you walk out the door and you have this juxtaposition. Oh, well, okay. Let me backtrack slightly. Once you kind of pass that, you see um, some of the, the modeling from he, Tim Burton. Not that he's done this much, but he directed a music video for the killers mm-hmm. also based out of Las Vegas. Yep. And so you saw some of the models from that and you saw the, the music video playing in the background. And then, you know, as you would expect, it's kind of darkly lit and what have you. And then you walk outside, and it is literally outside. And when we saw it, it was during daytime. Yep. So you get this great juxtaposition between, like, the dark moodiness that starts off this exhibit into this very bright Vegas sun, even in January. Mm-hmm. And the Boneyard exists all year long, correct? Yeah, it's there. Yeah. So if you ever see, you know, the old Stardust sign... Yep. Or maybe uh, Liberace's neon sign, or yeah. um, the Aladdin, which is no longer there. It's up. They have Hollywood now. Yeah, they have two different Aladdins. They have the old one from the '60s, and then a newer one as well. Two different signs. Right. So you you see all the signage of old Vegas that has been maintained and cultivated into this cool, what looks like a scrap, like an artistic scrapyard, I guess. Yeah. And then to your point, intermixed, you get Stain Boy. You get you know the boy with the nails in his eyes. You get. Mars Attacks is the very first thing that greets you. It's like all yeah. the Martians with their guns drawn, ak, 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 you know, facing you. <laughs> ak, ak. It's super. Ak, ak, ak. It's super cool, and it's cool to see. You know, like he didn't just take over. Or just he didn't just create an exhibit. He incorporated his art, some of his most beloved art, yeah. into pre-existing yeah. neon signs, so that yeah. you know you may come for the burden, but you stay for the for the Vegas, yeah. right? Super cool. And then there was the. Uh, that indoor, what do you call that? I guess it was another audiovisual sort of thing. Yeah, it was kind of like a dome, and then he in, in the wall of the dome at various levels. Like sometimes you had to stoop down almost to knee level. Um, he had these like little, I call them like digital postcards, and some of them are like digital snow globes because you look right, inside yeah. this little tiny TV screen, but it's like a projection, almost like, like modern shadow boxing. Yeah, or exactly, like modern shadow boxing. And then of course in the middle was this awesome thing because he had wrote this poem. That's sort of semi-sexual in nature about this guy at a slot machine, and there's this like right. there's this um, ethereal uh, disembodied female head in this slot machine, and and he's kind of like getting excited by it. So it's mixing like gambling and also sexual gratification and arousal and arousal. Um, but so he did a physical manis- manifestation of that poem. Which is just crazy. So that it, it's just inexplicable. It's basically like a robot at a right. slot machine with a floating head inside that kind of looks like Helena Bonham Carter a little bit. As they all do. <laughs> what, you, what you had is you had sort of it was a mixture of a, a real statue of the of the male character, yeah. and the body of the slot machine, yes. But but her head and the coins that the come coins out, coins were great. The coins upon her climax mm. were all digital projections, Helena. So like every uh, you climax. know every few seconds it would replay it was super cool it was cool. really cool experience um and then you come back outside and you exit through the gift shop and we spent way too much money uh my wife doesn't listen to this so yeah we spent way too much money. but um it's very very cool if you guys are in las vegas i certainly recommend you check it out these are the kind of things 
you know, we on this pro, on this podcast we talk about art, but mostly movies, right? Yeah. But it's not just what's on the screen. You know, nowadays you start to see these pop-ups. You know, like right by my house in, mm-hmm. in West Hollywood, they've done um, the Max mm-hmm. by Saved by the Bell, right? Yep. That was a, that was a pop-up that happened. Um, I think it's currently the same spot, the same physical location is currently I think it's uh, Breaking Bad. Breaking now. Bad, yep. Mm-hmm. And then just down the road at, at Fat Sal's, mm-hmm. they had the uh, Good Burger mm-hmm. and the Big Kahuna Burger. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes you get really lucky and you get to enhance your movie-going experience with these interactive type things. Uh, the I Love Scary Movie yep. exhibit that was going on in Los Angeles during the summer. Yeah. Another cool thing, you see these cool props and set deck. It's just, it's just fun. It's yeah. fun, especially if these are movies that you love. And again, to Jude's point, if you happen to be traveling through Las Vegas for any reason, um, I recommend two things for sure. Number one, uh, if you have the opportunity to stay the night, you should stay at the Artisan, which yeah. we did not get a chance to do because no, we stayed at a friend of ours. Yeah. But um, thanks, Hill Dog. But it's very cool. It's a it's 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 a motel, but it's it's very dark and gloomy and grim, and it's got. These paintings all over, like all over the walls, like on the ceiling, and t- as as well. That's awesome. And um, and then and then go to the Tim Burton exhibit while it's still around because it's super cool. And um, yeah, it's a limited time. They extended it. it was, yes. So, so you've got another couple. Of, so by the time I'm back in Los Angeles, yeah. that exhibit Maybe will be done. Forever. So I, I've been to some of his other exhibits too. I went to the one at Lackman. We both did. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, Interesting story about that. <laughs> it's actually kind of happened both every both times we've gone to Tim Burton exhibits where it's like we barely got in in time. Yeah. Um, when we went to the LACMA, which was uh, we were working on Sam, Disney's Sam Sandwich, mm-hmm. which is a pretty cool stop motion thing that I think you can find online. I think so, yeah. So if you guys are into stop motion, you want to see some of the stuff that Jude and I have worked on together. Uh, the bite no bite size adventures of Sam Sandwich. The bite size adventures of Sam Sandwich, which is not to be confused with the high fructose adventures. Right. Of the annoying orange, which I worked on <laughs> after that. Keep um, your food adventures separate. Right, I was going through a phase in my life, um, but we barely made it, and they were telling us like you're not yeah. going to get in, even though you bought a ticket. Like Tim's yeah. done, like you're not going to get in because yeah. at that particular exhibit, Tim Burton was there. Yeah, and we stubbornly just said, "Well, they got to shoo us away for sure." I mean, they got to lock the gate on us. Yeah, we're going to stand in line, and yeah. and we did, and we got in, and we got to see Tim, and yeah. you got a photo with him. Yeah. And it was super cool. So, take an opportunity to, to visit these things if you have the if if they're in any way feasible for you because it's really cool and it's not every day that a visionary like Tim Burton, you know, has an extension of his art available for people to witness yeah. and to enjoy. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of saying. Like the LACMA experience is completely different than the Vegas experience, and I know they I know they've had this in in uh, Japan. I know he did a thing in Mexico City, and it's always thematic and it's different than it was. It incorporates some of the same art, but you never know what you're going to see and what's not going to be available. Right. Because some stuff is on on loan too. It's from his personal collection or from a studio, or whatever. So it's not always the same. So it's interesting because it's fluid. Um, and I, what I really like about Tim Burton is he is an auteur. He he, if he wasn't a filmmaker, despite that, he's still a great artist. You know? Right. So now he's kind of. I imagine he's getting a little older in life, and he's like, I got to leave my mark on the world other than just film. Just like Danny Elfman's doing now, he's starting to write. He's composing again, and he's going to do overtures right. and stuff. Because, yeah, they've all done the movie thing, and of course their movies will live forever, but they also want to be sort of taken serious in the mainstream world too. And like, okay, Danny's a composer. Tim is an artist as well in, in addition to being a filmmaker. So I think it's really cool that they're 
you know, moving to that phase in their lives. And, you know, we, we have been really fortunate, um, me living in Los Angeles and you having essentially a second home in Los Angeles yeah. to see not only the Tim Burton exhibit at the LACMA, but also the Stanley Kubrick yeah. uh, exhibit. I don't think you didn't go to the Gilmo one, did you? Uh, yeah, I went to that you twice, went, actually. With me or separate? I don't know about if we... Anyway, but anyways, those yeah. are very cool, yeah. you know, because you get to see part of the part of the uh, you know memorabilia from their different films and like a little insight into into their personal process. Yeah. But again, what made this one unique was that it was very much you couldn't move this exhibit anywhere else. No, it's Vegas. This is a this is Tim Burton Vegas by Tim Burton. Exactly. Tim Burton Tim Burton on Vegas. <laughs> and it was super cool. And if you hear the slow or Vegas on Tim Burton. Well, maybe on his mind. <laughs> if you hear a low rumbling growl in the distance, that is my dog Sophie who is snoring so loud. But poor girl has been in a car for three days. We didn't even stay in hotels. No. We just slept in loves and pilots. So, Hobro. Yeah, because we're, we're crazy people. But I'm not going to move her. So if you guys hear that, just ignore it. Just know <laughs> that my poor dog is getting a nice, gentle rest at the end of a long trip. Um, because we didn't stop at the Tim Burton exhibit. No. In fact, that was just the first leg of our tour. Yeah, it was. Um, we then drove 18 hours. Hmm. From sunny, beautiful Las Vegas to hmm. mine and Matt's home state, and that is the People's Republic of Tejas. Oh, well, that's the perfect cue because I'm going to open my Lone Star beer which right is, here. Which is my favorite, favorite beer, even though I'm drinking wine at the moment. It's a damn good beer. It is so, so good. So good. And it's only ah, in Texas. Parched. And every time I drive through or I go home, I pick some up, or if I have friends coming through... I mean, this is this Texas beer, this this Lone Star beer, been around since 1884. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. It's so a we, great play that I was actually in in college. Oh, called Lone Star. Really? It's just two guys sitting in a. I think they're in a junkyard drinking beer, and it's really good. Was I, that I, written by Kevin Smith? Because uh, <laughs> I, I want to say Neil Simon, but I don't think it is Neil Simon. But it's some famous playwright wrote it. Yeah. It's well, great. it's it's excellent beer, but we didn't just go to Texas for the beer. No, we went. For a very particular uh, attraction, mm. in the vein, I, in the vein, I guess of Tim Burton, but um, a little bit more homegrown, yeah, more from the fans' perspective, mm-hmm. and that was the Munster Mansion yeah. in Waxahachie, Texas, what just did, south of what Dallas. Did, what did you just call me? Waxahachie. Damn it! Just not to be confused with Shavedahachie. That's by <laughs> Fort Worth. <laughs> yeah, so more, more uh, prickly there. Yeah. Um, so there is a. Uh, a fan mm-hmm. who has spent the last 20 years not just cultivating artifacts from the show The Munsters, mm-hmm. which you guys may recognize as our outro music, um, but she built the house from scratch. Yeah. She actually hired contractors to build a house that was to the exact scale and, and styling of 1313 Mockingbird Lane. Yeah, it's really incredible. I had heard about this place maybe... I don't know, I'm guessing 10 years ago. I don't, I don't even remember how it first came on my radar. But somewhere in the back of my brain, it was filed away. Like, I know somewhere in Texas, there's this Monsters Mansion. And when we were planning our road trip, we were like, hey, let's pick some spots along the way to make it interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've both been on that Route 40, and I have drove back and forth, forth to Georgia a million times. So I've seen all that Crater Lake and Meteor City and Petrified Wood and all that stuff. So I was like, what can we see? We went to this place, and it's incredible. So cool. Suzanne is the owner, and 
Um, I guess her and her husband they they sort of refurbish homes sort of professionally. Yeah, the McKees. The McKees, and they they uh, they jokingly once said, "Wouldn't it be cool if we redid the Munsters' house?" Yeah, and uh, her husband was like, "Okay, yeah, we can do that." That's what she said. Yeah, we can do that. so guys, go again. Go follow my Twitter. Look at this thing. These pictures are. I mean, every room is an exact replica. I mean, exact replica. Yeah. To the point where she was telling us a story. Susan was. Uh, sorry, Sandra was. Did I say Susan? Or, yeah, or, you said Susan, but it's Sandra. I it's think. Sandra. My sister's name is Susan. Yeah. My mom's name is Sandra. So I got conflated. Yeah. Uh, but she, Sandra, was telling us that um, that the plate. She she knew that the plates in the dining room were not exact, but she was waiting for the the the, the exact replicants to come in. Yeah. And um, she used to hold dinner parties. Yeah. At this monster mansion. And someone pulled her aside afterwards and said, just so you know, these are not the plates from the show. Uh-huh. I mean, the people who come have such a such a, a, a genuine uh, enjoyment of the Munsters and, and their fandom reaches the, you know, the highest of heights that every little detail has been carefully poured over so that these fans get an experience as, as authentic as humanly possible to... Walking in the actual Munster's house. Better than what's on the Universal lot, which oh, got turned into far uh, better. Desperate Housewives or uh, something. Wisteria Lane, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't go to the Universal for that. No. Go to Waxahachie, Tejas. Hey, I told you not to call me that. Um, you know what? It, what's really cool is that I this woman – okay, think about what you're a fan of. Like I'm a Tim Burton fan. You might be a Kobe Bryant rest in peace fan. You might be whatever fan, right? This woman – is the puts the fan in fanatical imagine 20 years you spend every she said day and night they lived in that house building yeah it. until recently yeah and she's watched all 70 episodes on repeat over and over and over to get every excruciating detail so that is amazing and on top of that she i, I asked her i said did you have a product professional production designer coming here because this stuff is super detailed it looks i was like it's hollywood quality work here Easy. and she said no i did it all myself so the the amount of of time effort research uh money resources that went into that is incredible you have to see it you put it on your bucket list now did you did you hear her i mean th- th- this is to highlight sort of the um the level that the that 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 Sandra and Charles went to. So Sandra is about five four. Yeah, she recognized that uh, Lily Munster was about five two. Yeah. So she would watch the show to see how many steps it took Lily to get from yeah. one side of the room to the next, and that's how they would scale out the room. Yeah, because they had new, no blueprints or plans or anything. No, they, they just watched, watched the all show from the show. And she's like encyclopedic, obviously, because she spent twenty years watching this show and recreating it. And she'll say. She would say things like, "Yeah, so so this room you know, you only saw in, the, in two episodes. Once Grandpa Munster came through the door, and once uh, Herman Munster did something here. Like, but she knows every fa- all the facts about it and everything. And um, it's a really great place. It's 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 magical. Like it's it's the things that you want out of uh, uh, out of Hollywood. You know, it's like." That's why we do this. It creates this universe that's incredible. It's not just fans that come to visit it either. I mean, she's had the surviving cast members yeah. come visit the house. Some yeah. repeatedly. Al Lewis, yep. who played Grandpa Grandpa Munster. Yeah. Um, he used to visit it before he passed. Yeah. Butch Patrick, who yep. played Eddie Munster, mm-hmm. is a regular. Comes every other year. Yeah, comes with his new wife. She said, and they travel around and. Uh, 
come in there? You know, uh, for those who, who are big fans of the show, uh, there are two Marilyn Munsters. Mm-hmm. Um, the most well-known and the one who visited the Munster Mansion quite frequently. In fact, they're, they're quite close. Yep. Is Pat Priest. Yeah. Patricia Priest, who played the second uh, Marilyn. So this is something that, like, Everyone has gone on board for. You know, they even have the 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 uh, the, the the car, not not the Dragula, yeah, but the uh, the coach, yeah, which is great because uh, that was designed by George Barris, rest in peace. But uh, it was funny because I had met George Barris, me and uh, my producing partner Dan Campbell, uh, Blue Falcon Productions, had been there. And went to George's shop before he passed away. So we were talking about that. And she was like, yeah, actually, I was there too. And I met George. And it was crazy because he created all these iconic cars. like The Batmobile? The Batmobile. The 66 Everything. So many. You'd have to look them up. There's a whole list of them. But every iconic vehicle for like 30-year span, he either designed or uh, thought of and made from scratch or helped on so it was incredible, and he was this—he was this little old ornery man that used to—he would just yell like he needed a reality show, but unfortunately one didn't happen because he would still run it like a like a mom and pop, and all these cars were in there. Yeah. He, he'd have like dozen or two cars in there from all these movies and TV shows over a span of three four decades, um, and there he was just doing his paperwork, yelling at his family, but in a nice way, you know, just like super. Uh, He's he's on a level of one to ten. He was an eleven. He's like a little firecracker, and, you know. It's incredible. And, and in fact, she was saying that they're about the same height. Yeah, they're about the same. Probably about five four. <laughs> yeah, five, he's five, a maybe. little tiny guy. Um, you know, really great experience. So she was saying she went there, and then he uh, helped her. You know, showed her the design of that and everything, and then she got some private people and, and put the car together, which we saw too, and it was amazing. I mean, it's beautiful, and it, and it runs, and it runs. Yeah, I I hope that they take like day trips in the Munster Mobile because it's so <laughs> yeah. cool. I mean, guys, this this is this is really next level passion and uh, fandom, and it's really cool. And they they do they used to do these uh, charity events yeah. for years up until very recently. Yeah, that had some of the original members come and and be part of the the event, but. They would give to local charities just yeah. using their this passion project that they did just because. Like, yeah. it's not like they set out to be this sort of attraction. It was just yeah. a thing that they said they would do, and then it kept growing and growing and growing, and it got more and more popular. And they met all these wonderful people along the way. And you know, she it was just Jude and I on this tour, yeah, and her. And Sandra took a moment to really talk to us with every room. Yeah, it was so it was like talking with an old friend, even though it was the first time we'd met her. Was, yeah. She was absolutely. And completely wonderful. Yeah. A personality to match all the effort and time and aesthetic to, into this house. So, yeah. again, if you guys are in Texas, if you're anywhere near, you're passing through, the Munster Mansion in Waxahachie, Texas is a must-see attraction. Yeah, and if you're lucky, you'll get to meet a uh, Texas State Patrolman. Which we did. <laughs> yeah. And, and we got we got off with a warning without even having to show our tits. Yeah, exactly. So that was nice. Yeah, so was, I learned not to mess with Texas. Never mess with Texas. Yeah. So, Jude, as as we got to see some really cool attractions, we had to carry on through the night, driving through the night, mm-hmm. like the devil's going back to Georgia, never, your home never. state. Ah, uh, this great state of adventure. So you've done several movies here. Uh, aside from being born here, or well, you weren't born here. Yeah, I wasn't born what's, here. What sense of that, where you were from? <laughs> New York City. <laughs> Get uh, but you lived in Georgia. You lived up by Chattanooga. Yeah. And uh, Well, first I lived in LaGrange, Georgia, which is even way further south. Right. Uh, no one knows where any of that is. <laughs> but you but you were born, you, were, you lived here your whole life. Yeah. Georgian through and through. Yep. 
and um, graduated University of Georgia, right? And um, got to see a bunch of cool bands back in the days. Uh, REM and all those guys. Nirvana and Nirvana, uh, Pearl Jam, Gin Blossoms, uh, a bunch. Right, but you, um, since you've you've really launched your movie career in earnest, mm-hmm. have had the opportunity to come back and shoot here at least a few times, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, on some shows we worked together on, we did... Uh, I think we're up to number... We're getting close to 20 if we haven't passed it yet. We have to count after this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we did a show called Siren down in Savannah, Georgia, and some in Augusta, Georgia. And then we did Saving Zoe also in Augusta, Georgia. Both movies currently available on Netflix. Netflix, yeah. Go check them out. Um, so I, I, mean, I don't remember if we've talked about this before, but Siren... Um, was a spinoff, the only spinoff from the VHS series, yeah. which was co-produced by Brad Miska of BladeDisgusting.com. Mm, David Bruckner. And David Bruckner. And uh, Greg Bishop directed mm-hmm. Siren and produced by our production company that I used to work for. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, shot in shot mostly in Savannah and a little bit of Augusta. And then we yeah. went back to that church in Augusta for Saving Zoe. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. I was, uh, I was on, on my Instagram and just some random sort of person who came from you know came from the podcast page mm-hmm. was post was was watching the movie yeah on in her stories you know yeah and i was like oh my god i produced that film mm-hmm. and she was like oh that's so great it's actually really fun i was like cool because yeah. you know when you're we and we've talked about this certainly before like when you're in the moment mm-hmm. of making a film like you don't know i mean you hope it's good yeah you know but you don't know and you don't know how people are going to react to it because all you remember is all the you know, hopefully you remember the good times, but you remember a lot of the stressful times as well. Yeah, that was a, siren was a very stressful job. I mean, you were you were in the trenches. I was back in the mothership, but like <laughs> yeah. you were in the ground level. Like you yeah. were like the aliens from Signs. Yeah, like I was up in the ship, <laughs> yeah, away exactly. from the water, but you were out there fighting Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> and glasses of water tipping over on you. Yeah, man. So you go fight Arthur Fleck. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. But Jude pulled it off because he's the man. That's right. And, uh, you know, listen, people are enjoying it. And it's on Netflix, so you can yeah, watch it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm in both of those movies. We'll put you so, in just about everything. I'm, yeah, pretty much everything. Yeah. But uh, but we also did Save and Zoe together. Yeah. Both of us got in the trenches on that one. Yeah. Got our, we got our hands bloody as it was. <laughs> and um, Jeff Hunt, mm-hmm. a famous director from... Not to be confused with Mike Hunt. Oh, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> um, director who's done Riverdale and... Vampire Diaries. Vampire Diaries and whatever, all those types of shows. I think he's done some of the DC ones as well. Really, really impactful film. Not horror, Mm -hmm. but dark, very dark drama. Very moving, very rooted in reality sort of base. Yeah. You know, horror that many women, very unfortunately, have to deal with. And sex trafficking and disappearances and abuse and violence. Yeah, super good uh, social commentary there on that movie. And um, actually, after that film, I became good friends with Alison Noel, Noel, who's the author of the book, best-selling author of the book, Saving Zoe. Um, And she also wrote the series Evermore, which is really popular young adult fiction um, but she's really awesome, really cool. And I, it's funny cause I had known her on another show, like, like, I don't know, 15 years prior. Oh, really? I didn't even know this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we had known each other and the writers, um, knew her. And then we, I remember cause they wanted me to produce that and then it never got funding and something that went away. Classic Hollywood story. <laughs> yeah. And then we come back and I'm like, 
I know that name. I, I know that name. And then, sure enough, they they came to set together and like, dude, oh my god, you're on this movie? This is crazy. Like, full circle. So that was cool. And then we became even closer since. And really cool story because one of my friends, Josh in L.A., was an ever huge Evermore fan since he was you know super young adult, um, and he's like, oh my god, you know Alison Noel. So I talked to her and she sent him a, a, a signed book. And oh, everything. that's cool. It was super sweet and it kind of like she she has a ton of fans because she's like the you know J.K. Rowling of the young adult world in America. So when that happened, it blew up in social media and it was really cool because that's just the kind of person she is. She is really nice and oh, and, she still follows and likes all my stuff regardless yeah. of it, whether it's Saving Zoe, yeah, uh, centric or otherwise. Yeah. Super sweet person, great person. So we worked on that film together, and now we're back, mm-hmm. back in Georgia this mm-hmm. time in Hotlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I probably can't really talk about what we're doing yet. I will yeah. in a couple of months, but yeah. um, you know. Not unfamiliar territory from yet another project we worked on together. Yes. So I think this one will be fun. This one has some horror elements in it. Cool. From a certain perspective. Mm-hmm. So from a certain point of view, as Ben Kenobi would say. <laughs> so I think you guys will like it. I'll talk about it more once it's out or at least once we're done shooting. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you can you can follow those. And I'm sure Jude will have you on. At least when Matt's married, getting married, which is in a few weeks. But if not, probably maybe you might be on every episode for the next three months. You know, I once went to a bachelor party where the featured act had a deflated fake implant that had popped on the way there. And rather than going to a hospital, she decided to continue with the evening. Um, we haven't – I've talked about it. Since this has occurred, but you haven't been on the show, I don't think. Yeah. Since you've been able to talk about it, but you were on The Mandalorian. Oh, I was on The Mandalorian. It was fan freaking tastic. I mentioned this to, to the Matt, and um, you got to play one of the bounty hunters. That the spoilers, the show's been out since December. Um, you got to play one of the bounty hunters that was trying to kill Mando. That's right. When um, uh, Carl Weathers turns on him. That's right. Uh, it was a really awesome experience. I was super lucky to happen to be available when that was shooting. Uh, and they contacted me, and I uh, was there, I don't know, maybe 10 days over two weeks spread out, or oh, spread over three weeks. But uh, it was a great experience, man. So, so, so tell us, so, you know, on this show, this is a very indie movie-centric show. And yeah. certainly my perspective on life is from the indie filmmaker perspective. But... This is a different world, man. This is yeah. like this is like the big leagues. Yeah, this like is... even being even being a featured background artist, you yeah. know, uh, we did have a name for your bounty hunter, didn't we? Uh, not sure. I don't remember. We'll come up with it again. But uh, this is this is a different scale of filmmaking than yeah. anything I've been on. Yeah. So so for those for those people who listen to this show and they've always get this sort of indie perspective on things like. What's what's you've been on you've been on all kinds of stuff, right you you started on Fox Films yeah you've done the low down dirty indies yeah and now you're in Star Wars as a as a bounty hunter on screen you yeah. could be Boba Fett uh, that's right like someone be. you know in like five years yeah you could be that guy that's that right. people see with the long Grandpa Gandalf beard yeah and like the cool sort of helmet and the and the blaster yeah and people are just gravitate towards that bounty hunter. Well, and they start making action figures, and then you get your own Disney Plus show. That's right. So, Perfect. what was that experience like coming from doing these these down and dirty, doing the Saving Zoe's and the Sirens of the world? Yeah, well, like you said, you know, I got my start on uh, huge studio films. In fact, the first film I was on 
was was a hundred twenty million dollar movie called Bicentennial Man with with Robin Williams back in the day. So uh, a small film. Uh, yeah, small film. It was the b- largest budgeted film to date at that time, um, and uh, so I, I was used to th- I was used to that large scale and all that and in the hierarchy and, and the technicians and all that stuff. And then that was you know years before, probably a decade before digital really came into right because to its own. Digital really kind of started. I think the. F- I don't know. I wouldn't say the first camera, but the camera that I first became aware of, I think, was called the Genesis, mm-hmm. and it was used by, which is t- a nice tie-in, George Lucas. Yeah. On the new, on, on the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, right. he was like the first. He was one of the early pioneers of that technology. Yeah. And I remember hearing an interview with Robert Rodriguez where he said that um, I want to say it was once a time, once upon a time on Me- in Mexico. Mm-hmm. That George Lucas really convinced him that this digital thing was like the way to go, and like he, you know, I know Sophie's <laughs> snoring in the background. Just deal with it, guys. Uh, it's cute. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So this whole digital—I mean, look—it would it have occurred anyway? Maybe, right? Yeah. But certainly, like when you have a, 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 a such an important filmmaker like George Lucas, really pushing this in the same way that say James Cameron did for 3D yeah you know what um, what has been your experience going from these huge blockbuster films with A-list actors shooting on celluloid mm-hmm. to this George Lucas uh, approval stamped digital age and going from that to the indies and then going back to the Mandalorian on Disney Plus yeah I mean I, I think it's it's kind of come full circle. We were talking about this the other day, how now there's kind of two film worlds out there. There's like yeah. there's the studio world that never has stopped and, and that that certain system has been around for decades and that's never going to change. And then there's this other world of sort of young people leading young people, which is much more unorganized in the sense that um, – they just don't have the same system in place. They didn't grow up in that system, so its system doesn't exist. Right. So it's it's its own animal, which is completely different, uh, for better or for worse, in my opinion, worse for a lot of the times. Um, but still, it exists, and, it, and, and, and until streaming goes away, which will never happen, it will continue to exist separately. Well, you know, it, it's, it's very much a double-edged sword because on the one hand, because of digital and streaming and... Um, whatever you want to blame the lowering of budgets, yeah. you have been forced to hire younger and younger film crew. Right. And there's more to it than that. There's the involvement of unions and et cetera. But what you have is a workforce that is predominantly much younger than you would have normally seen. So you, this was something I found really interesting. On yeah. The Mandalorian, yeah. you said the average, the average age of any position yes. was older than you. Yeah, which yeah. is pretty old. Yeah, <laughs> pretty old. Yeah, exactly. So, which which to me was you know a testament that they wanted seasoned veterans that that had probably decades of experience like me because they wanted everything right. You know, right. So I thought that was really cool on many levels. And and that year I actually had done uh, other shows. I was on The Good Place and uh, Superstore and some other shows. And they were the same. They all had, I'd say the average age was probably 40 um, or 50. Um, and you didn't have the 25-year-old PA. The PA was like 35 years old. You know right. what I mean? So how many, how many of the crew had really skinny pants on? <laughs> None. 
What about um, <laughs> uh, ironic mustaches? <laughs> Zero. Right. So, but listen, but uh, this is this is no indictment that I I necessarily think that this is inherently a bad thing because, look, me being nearly thirty nine, if not for this digital age, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily. I, I may not be in the industry. Period. Yeah. And uh, because I, I certainly had no pedigree to be in the industry, I didn't start at eighteen when a lot when most of these people do. Yeah. Right. I started when I was like twenty six or seven, and so. Uh, if not for these, this the the gatekeepers going away, right? Yeah, a lot of a lot of young people would never have gotten the opportunity absolutely to work on stuff at all. And and with yeah. that, you get the the good and the bad. On the good side, there's a lot of work. Yeah, tons and tons and tons of work. On the bad, mm-hmm. the budgets have gone down, mm. and uh, that means you you gotta you know you don't get the same luxuries that you're gonna get on the Mandalorian. Exactly. But the the Mandalorian I thought was great just because it was you know everything you would expect super professional and uh, people weren't complaining time wasn't being wasted they weren't inefficient because you know well, I heard a lot about meal penalties <laughs> well they they would rather pay the meal penalties because uh, they'd rather shorten the calendar you know what I mean so they didn't care to pay the meal penalties it wasn't like they were like we're going to shoot till twelve and then. Shoot our six and then shoot another hour and go to Mioho. They just knew that day they were not even going to take a lunch. They just didn't do it. Right. But it doesn't matter because you get served hot food every two hours. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the caterer was, it was all hot. Like, craft service was bigger than catering on an indie film. So it didn't matter. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, it's funny because last week, one of the questions in our, in our mailbag was asking about LED lights. Mm hmm. And I remember, uh, not only from you, but I think from other sources, uh, the Mandalorian employed a lot of this 360 LED technology. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really awesome because we were on a stage way down south in L.A. And uh, it was impressive because you had some of the biggest sound stages down there. Like I'm talking, you know, soccer field size indoor stages to put in perspective guys um i've toured these stages before because i know some people that work there yeah and uh oh you do too you know steve yeah steve used to be at a hollywood rental steve altman yeah altman Mm -hmm. shout out to steve altman but um so i've gotten a chance to tour these these stages yeah and these are the same stages that james cameron shot parts of avatar on yeah i mean these are these are they're massive massive state-of-the-art technologies yeah. south of Los Angeles. Yeah. They are the, the kind of the crop, you know. Yeah. Um, and you got the opportunity to work on one of them and yeah. work and do this big shootout action scene. Yeah, we did. I did a couple of scenes there, but the big shootout scene was uh, really awesome because you got this, again, soccer size, uh, huge, you know, city essentially built on a stage with green screen and uh air conditioning and lighting grids and all the effects. And then, you know, you had, I want to say that day, those days, they had probably 30 utility stunt guys. That's in addition to the stunt cast. Right, because that's, uh, for those who may not have seen the scene yet, remind me, I I believe, because The Mandalorian got me through my last show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I would have made it otherwise without Baby Yoda. Yeah. But, um... is that the scene where the other Mandalorians show up yeah. and like kind of fight you guys off? Yeah, yeah. So, so he's coming in, and uh, there's kind of like this uh, Mexican standoff where they're both on either end, and then uh, they all come flying out, you know, flying from out of the sky, and there's basically a giant, massive shootout, and I'm I'm one of the guys that is 
on the other team who was because uh, Mando Jarjin, however you say that name, he has a bounty on his head. For now, he's being hunted. So the hunter becomes the hunter. The hunter, exactly. So we're and and he's got the biggest bounty in the whole galaxy. So we're all after him. So it's basically every person, every creature, every alien, every bounty hunter for themselves to get this gigantic bounty. Um, so that's what that's what the scene is. And then they basically they obliterate almost everybody. I. My character not necessarily doesn't get killed. You don't see that on the screen. I was going to ask that. I was like, do you know? Like, I don't know what your name. Your, we got to name your character. Well, we did once, and I forgot. I'll, what it I'll was. leave that to John Favreau to do. Uh, and you're close personal friends with him. <laughs> I hear. And George yeah. Lucas. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, but you, but but your character, as far as we know, did not die, and therefore you it definitely me. didn't die because I they they definitely didn't kill me because they they saved me. But I don't know if that was intentionally or just because. For whatever reason. Well, but. so there's a possible. So what you're saying is, <laughs> if we keep, if we all uh, at John Farro and George Lucas, <laughs> yeah. there's a, and Disney Plus, <laughs> yeah. there's a possibility that yeah. uh, you're yet to be named That's bounty hunter. F- yes. Um, I don't know. I can't think of a good name yet for that. Um, <laughs> we'll just call him Jimmy Blue Eyes. <laughs> yeah. That he might make a, a resurgence in season two. Yeah. And it, what else is great about that is that. Um, I said I've done. I've been doing a couple of interviews because Star Wars fans is, are rabid, and they're international, so they've been reaching out to me. And I've done, I've done two on the record, and I got two more coming, and then a couple more. Um, so one is called Star Wars Interviews, one is called Entertainment Junkies, and then I got uh, the the I don't know two other ones coming up. So check out follow those. Jude on his Twitter for yeah. all those interviews. It's Jude S. Walko. Yeah. At Judas Walko. Yeah, on Twitter and Instagram and all that. I'm pretty much – there's only one Judas Walko in the world. Like it's a very – Judas un- Walko. <laughs> That's like from that movie. Uh, the you, toy. You ass. Yeah. The toy. Yeah, I US. love that. Yes. <laughs> Jackie Gleason. It was amazing. You Richard Pryor. Yeah, Richard Pryor. Yeah, great movie. So briefly tell us uh, – so you're doing all these interviews and, and, yeah. and that's super cool and – um, I, 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 we talked on the road that I, I really hope that this, what this does yeah. is put a spotlight you yeah. on you as a, as a filmmaker and yeah. especially as a director. But, yeah. um, speaking of directors, yeah. there was a funny incident that occurred on the set of the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. You being an AD and a line producer and a yeah. producer, you're always punctual. Yes. Always right. on time. That's early right. often. In fact, that's right. So yeah, so I was there and uh, I got there early and I said this in some of my other interviews. Like they want, they chose me because of my face and my look, right? Because I have a very distinct face, high cheekbones, crazy eyes, and look like a serial killer. Or uh, Gandalf the Wizard. Or Gandalf the Wizard, yes. Or both. Or serial Gandalf. That would be a good show. So, so they like my face. So the good news for that is, one, I didn't have to sit into two to three hours of prosthetic makeup effects, which a lot of the people did there because they're enjoyed outfits and Aliens costumes and, shit, yeah. and all that. Um, and the other benefit of that is you could actually see my face on the screen, unlike most people, um, in, on that particular show. So anyway, so I was, I was there early, got through the chair in about an hour and I, and, uh, I said, well, what do you want guys want me to do? Cause all the other people were, t- needed at least two more hours. Right. So I said, just go hang on the set, man. That's cool. I was like, cool. So I go into, we did this other scene that's similar to the cantina in the original Star Wars. Right. So you're in that scene? I'm in that scene too, I looked, yeah. I looked hard to see if I could see you on yeah, that Yeah, it's, uh, who knows, man. There was a, definitely in the shootout. I know yeah, that. Yeah, there, there's a hundred people in there actually, so, but it's super dark in those scenes. Yeah, right. Um, so we could be a little shadow way off in the distance. You never know. But anyway, so we're, so I go there and, um, 
and George Lucas is there. George Lucas is there because it was it was John Favreau's birthday, October nineteenth, twenty eighteen, and he had come early and he and and he has Skywalker Vineyards up in Marin County where he has Skywalker Walker Ranch right. and all that. So he brought him a bottle. I'm guessing of his Skywalker wine. And they were talking, so I went in there. Now, now, real quick, before you continue the story, yeah. was this um, Skywalker wine, or was this Palpatine wine that decided to change its name to Skywalker <laughs> wine just on a, on a whim? Either way, it was sour grapes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I go in, and, and there's uh, John and George, you know, talking to each other, and I'm basically the only one in the room other than them. There are a f- couple of technicians doing some, like, set dressing in the deep background, and I was like, man, this is cool, but it's kind of awkward. So I was like, hey, sorry, guys, you want me to leave because the ADs just said to come chill? And they're like, no, man, have a seat. So I was basically sitting there kind of eavesdropping, but also not wanting to eavesdrop because I didn't want to be unprofessional and stuff. So right. I was just I was just barely in earshot, so I'd hear bits and pieces. But either way, it was cool. And then George stuck around all morning uh, for that shoot, and it was just, man, it reminded me, it was so cool to, to see that legend. It reminds me of another story that actually happened to me. I was on, uh, my friend was a transpo, transpo captain maybe or coordinator on Minority Report. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so she she invited me for lunch one day on whatever, whatever wherever they were shooting. I don't remember. So I, I came for lunch, and the crew had already broken for lunch like 10 minutes after. And I walk in, and I'm looking around. I'm completely lost. Giant stages everywhere. And I walk, turn a corner, <laughs> and Steven Spielberg and Tom Cruise are sitting on the set. And Tom's like sitting down, and, and Steven Spielberg is kind of like hunched over him and they're talking very intimately about whatever they were talking about. And again, big old me Sasquatch Wendango <laughs> like stumbles on, you know, like trips onto the set and was like, Oh shit. So I'm probably not supposed to be here. Sorry. And, uh, Spielberg just looks up and he's like, Hey, hey don't worry, man. What are you looking for? And I'm like, I'm here to meet my friend for lunch. And then he's just like, yeah, just down the hall up to the right, whatever, whatever. Well, you know, we, we often call you the Wendigo. Uh, because you don't know when to come and when to go. <laughs> That's right. And it sounds like you've had two incidents. Yeah. You just stumbled upon two of the most innovative directors of yeah. all time in Steven yeah. Spielberg and George Lucas. Yeah. Man. Not to mention Tom Cruise. Yeah. Not to mention John Farrow. Yeah. Not to mention you spent all day hanging out with Gina, Car- Gina Carano uh, and yeah. um, you know uh, Pablo uh, Pascal. Uh, and Waiki Tahiti or however you say his name. I'm sure yeah, Carl right. Weathers. I mean, Carl Weathers was dude. great. He was, he was there. I was chatting him up and crafty all the time. That's super cool. Yeah, it was great. It's, it's weird. I tell people I have, I'm like, I have this weird, uh, some sort of universal charismatic magnet where I always meet famous people, even if it's incidental, like, like it's so weird. Like if, if I go to a concert, I'm almost guaranteed to end up backstage accidentally. I'm just that guy, right? So I'm always I'm always running into uh, these people all over the place. So it's kind of cool, but that that's how it happened. George was there, man. So I was like, hey, man, cool. super cool. So um, you know, we we have done a podcast on this, um, but just for those because you know, the, the, our Shark Island episode is one of our most listened to episodes. Oh, sweet. And um, just maybe give people an update because I know you've been mm-hmm. working on this for a while and yeah. I know it's a little it's this now this is the complete opposite of Shark of uh, the Mandalorian. Yeah. This is going back into the, the, yeah. the dirty indie world. Yes. So where where is Shark Island? When can we expect it? Where are we at with it? Yeah, cool. So Shark Island for those of you who don't know, it's kind of like a thriller 
whodunit uh, Agatha Christie meets Jaws. So we shot it in Thailand, super hot models, beautiful scenery, and a bunch of people getting killed by sharks, as you expect in a shark movie. Of course. <laughs> so it's currently, we're editing it. Um, we're pushing that along. I got composers putting the music together right now. We're looking for some songs. And then we're going to do a color correction pass and then sound pass and then gloss it all up. So I would say, I would say, hopefully the editorial's done in a month and then maybe, maybe two months for the rest of it. So I would say springtime, hopefully. Okay. We'll, we'll make a deal and get it out there. All right. So I, for those who don't know, I'm not an actor. Hmm. I'm more of a behind-the-scenes guy, behind the camera. Mm-hmm. I'm the guy behind the guy, behind the guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was a little jealous that I was not able to directly work on the incantation. Oh, yeah. Your first feature film. That's right. Um, because I uh, probably ill-advisedly <sighs> chose job security over jetting off to France for no money. That's right. Um, I was married at the time. So... <laughs> But I did get to work on it on some small level. I got you to did. do uh, a little voice work. Yeah, you did. It was really great. You, you were clutch for us because we that was for the Ethereal Crone, which is this character who's kind of like if you saw a pumpkin head, there was this um, – that's who I sort of modeled this character off of. There's this old lady in this, in this hut in pumpkin head. Right. And he keeps going to her for advice. And one of the best lines is, you know, after everything goes haywire and pumpkin heads like killed the whole town – he goes in there and he says, God damn you, bitch. And she's like, he already has, son. He already has. Right. So that was the character I was going for. But unfortunately, the woman that I cast in that role, although she looked great, was the sweetest little grandmother you could ever find in the world. She was this English expat who had lived in France with her husband, retired, you know, like putting petunias in the garden type woman. Right. And she was so sweet. And so, so I'm coaching her through the acting and trying to be her to get her <laughs> to be more aggressive. At one point, um, uh, I was trying to get her to to, to emote like anger because she because basically she's re- she's saying this poem, right? It's this right, but it's very dark and gr- a grim it, yeah. and eerie and right eth- and it, ethereal in some moments. It's exactly. very. It's meant to mess with you. It is, and it ramps up. Like, it starts off kind of like a fairy tale, and then it ramps up until, like, you know, that you're all going to die, basically, kind of thing. So I was trying to get her to do that, and I said something about she, – she was talking about her daughter, and I was like, yeah, like, when you're really mad at your daughter, when you yell at her for that, and she goes, oh, I would never do that. She's so sweet. Well, you cast a Brit. <laughs> yeah. The Brits are the nicest people. And they I don't. I, I one time got yelled at by former UFC champion Michael Bisping on a film <laughs> that we worked on together because uh, the producer, not you, mm-hmm. would not pay for his travel and mm-hmm. for the travel of his buddy Michael Jackson. Real name. Didn't make that up. I know and, Michael Jackson as well. Yeah. Uh, which one? Uh, Bisping's Michael Jackson or the King no, of Pop? Neither. He's. A, oh. I went to seminary with him. He lives in Georgia, actually. Oh, yeah. The seminary. That's a whole other podcast. We'll save that for the next one. <laughs> yeah. But um, Michael Bisping has a buddy named Michael Jackson, and they weren't weren't able to fly on the same flight because it was right before Christmas, and it was a change of plans because the UFC card had been canceled, and so he's he's cursing me out because I'm like the coordinator and I'm mm-hmm. trying to coordinate this travel, and but he recognizes it's not my fault. So I'm. Real low level. On, I mean, I, I I had a producer name who will go unnamed, who who laughed at me because I didn't know what a day out of days was. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, but as he was cursing me out, he was also apologizing for mm-hmm. cursing me out at yeah. the same time. So they're very nice people. Yeah. And uh, so, so, so he she, was uh, Amber Heard, basically. Ooh, not too soon. <laughs> um, but we, so so you cast this uh, this English expat living in France to be this, you know, at least progressively scary ethereal crone. Yeah, and it just wasn't working out. So for the just to pull the curtain back, when you guys hear the, um, you know, our sort of mailbag section that's my voice yeah, that's doing right. the creepy eerie thing it's just like one of my stupid human tricks it's you know? very john kassir tales from the crypt, crypt which, we've, which, we've, which we've also worked with yeah. before why don't you give the audience a little taste of it? like a talk like this on kill uh it's a little bit of like cobra commander meets like you know i don't know maybe it's the crypt keeper it's a one again my number 37 of stupid useless human tricks that i do yeah so i uh at least in some small way was able to be part of the the incantation which is available everywhere that's right itunes amazon and a million other places i don't mean to put you on the spot yeah but i'm just saying because i also did not get to work on shock (laughs) Island. right and i have this running tally of films that we work on together and it's something like bucket list goal for us to hit like a hundred or something. Okay. Which frankly will probably be like in three years. <laughs> um, if the sharks need an eerie, creepy voice. Okay. If you decide that 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 yeah. Thai Jaws uh-huh. needs a creepy demonic voice. Yeah. How about your boy, man? Okay. I got you. I got. Uh, well, I'll do it for scale. <laughs> just tap. Just tap me. Yeah. <laughs> it's you do this. You have this great thing like the tongue roll thing. That's really hard to do. Yeah. That's amazing that you did that too, <laughs> like the rattlesnake. Yeah, that's that's, yeah, a, that's a that's a skill. Well, man. listen, I, I'm not getting in. I'm not getting married for my earning potential, sir. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so, uh, you listen, guys. Um, go back and watch the Mandalorian because it's awesome. And look for Jude as yeah, one of the bounty hunters. That's right. Um, message us what you think his bounty hunter name should be. Yeah, yeah. Because we're going to try to get him on season two. That's right. Um, check out the incantation if you haven't already. I cannot stress, not just because you're my friend and mentor, but because I legitimately believe this is a, a really great film. I think you guys should watch this thing. This thing is so well shot. It's beautiful. It's it's a haunting fairy tale. And they just don't make horror films like this anymore. Thank you. James Wan... Jump scares, this is not. This is like old school hammer. Yeah. If you love that shit like I do, check yeah. this film out. And keep an eye out for Shark Island because uh, if incantation is, is any, you know. Inclination. Inclination of what you can do, then, um, you know, I Which know. Which is the sequel to incantation. <laughs> well, listen, I know you've worked on the big stuff, but at, at your heart, you're an indie guy. Yeah. And that means you, you don't always have the resources that you need, but that's the true measure of a, of an artist mm. is not when what they do when they have all the tools, all right. but what they do when they have none of the tools. Exactly. Often. So keep an eye out for all of Jude's work. Sure. Um, but this is what we kind of when we kind of get to the end of our topics, we like to turn to the fans. Sweet. And um, this this episode, we're gonna do something a little bit unique. Mm. Um, I mentioned I unfortunately, and I apologize, Sandra, if you listen to this podcast, I called you Susan. The reason I did is because my sister hmm. is Susan. Mm-hmm. My mom is Sandra. I mm-hmm. got her confused. And um, this this mailbag is going to be all from my sister. We're awesome. going to call my sister Susan Oscuro. Sweet. For this episode. So uh, without further ado, let's, mm-hmm. let's get some questions from Susan. Do it. Questions from the Crypt. 
Susan Escuro has a few questions for us this evening. What movie did you watch growing up that helped shape your view of the world or life in general? Oof, that's a good one. Um, what movie did I grow up watching? I, you know, I think that my world, my world view is constantly being shaped. So it's really hard for me to pick a movie that shaped my world view. But um, what I can, I can certainly pinpoint is a movie that shaped my film worldview, and it ties into what we've talked about today, and that is Swingers, hmm. written by John Favreau. And I said this to you on the drive here. Um, there was so so John Favreau wrote Swingers to write, direct, and act in, which you know is very difficult, as you wrote, direct, <laughs> and acted in yeah. the Incantation. Yes, alongside Dean Cain, yep. um, and so. Uh, the, when they went to Doug Lyman to produce this thing, to try to get funding for this thing, Doug said, you're not directing this. Hmm. You don't know shit about shit. Yeah. Uh, he's like, I will direct this, mm-hmm. um, on one condition. Oh, I'll produce this on one condition is that I direct it. Right. Cause you don't know shit about shit. Yeah. And, um, but he said, I, I need to ask you, he's like, we have, we can get enough money to either make a really crappy studio film hmm. or we can make a really great innovative student film. So they opted on the latter. And so a lot of the aesthetic that comes from that you see in Swingers is done because of a proper choice that they made. The, op- the, the times that they went handheld, the stolen shots, um, all the little you know shortcuts that make the magic, right? Mm. Those came from necessity, right? Creativity is born of, of necessity. Yep. And no truer was the case than in that film. And I remember... You know, what really engaged me in film was the, um, you know, was was the behind the scenes. And so that really shaped my worldview on how I approach filmmaking as a producer, as a line producer, as, as even when I AD, which I hope to never do again. <laughs> you know, it's really what do I want to do here? Do I want to make a crappy film that has everything that you could possibly want, but it doesn't have the resources to actually execute it well? Or do I want our limitations to enhance our creative choices. Hmm. So uh, that's for me. I don't know about you, Jude. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a hard one, man. Thinking back, but, but uh, I, I know two movies that really influenced me. And I think they came out at the same time. One was dangerous liaisons with John Malkovich. Oh, that's a great one. The Fortnite. Yeah. the <laughs> Bring back the Fortnite, baby. I'm a big fan of that. So that movie. And then Amadeus is, is my favorite movie. Amadeus. Of Amadeus. <laughs> Rock me, Amadeus. Uh, uh, that's funny that you mentioned that because yeah. I played uh, in the, I played an orchestra all through school, you know, from yeah. fifth grade onward till I graduated. Yeah. And, um, I, I do credit, you know, so, so obviously, you know, there's days that you just don't, you know, you don't have practice or whatever it may be. And yeah. so we would watch Amadeus. I saw that movie like a million times oh, between fifth grade yeah. and uh, and I graduated. And there's like a couple nude scenes yeah. that my teacher knew by heart. So she would walk to the TV. You know, remember they had the TVs yeah, on the yeah, rollers? Yeah. Right. She would walk to the TV with one of those manila envelopes. Yeah. And right before the nudity occurred, she'd hold the envelope over the screen. <laughs> Was, and censor it and then hilarious. take it down when the nudity was done. I saw, I've seen that movie like a hundred times. Yeah, I loved it. So uh, I guess that was kind of my maturing because I was a senior or junior or senior in high school. So this would have been 89, 90, I think. Um, but it's kind of my cinematic maturing when I went from being just right. a fan and audience member to realizing that cinema was powerful. It had messages. 
It could be it could be on massive scales or tiny as long as the story was great. But that that really kind of awakened me that there's this medium that's so powerful that if you watch it, it really can change people or either either help you escape from the real world or in some cases, you know, change the world. So, so we remember some cinematic things our entire lives. Like you can talk about some scenes and and it's almost like where, when Kennedy was shot. Like you, you know exactly. You know exactly what you're talking about, uh, and that feeling that it invokes. And uh, and that's, I guess that that year, those years were like I was like, wow, man, cinema is it's powerful, man. It's not just it's not just popcorn and right. jujubes. You know, it's not just an amusement park. It's not just an amusement that's park. Of course, easy with that. <laughs> yeah. What is your first memory of watching a film and thinking of it from a production standpoint? Ooh. Kind of ties into the first question a little bit. Yeah, I mean, my first memory of yeah, I uh, God, I don't know. You want to go first? On? Yeah, so I don't remember for sure. I mean, I can't say for certain. Um, but when I got involved in, when I got first interested in film beyond just loving film, right? Beyond just being a cinephile, like I, I really thought like this fascinates me on a mechanical level. Yes, was um, the making of Once Upon a Time in Mexico, mm-hmm. which I think we talked about earlier. We did, with the, the digital cameras. Yeah. Because Robert Rodriguez, um, very intelligently, very ahead of the curve, used to do these 10-minute these, um, film schools. Yeah. I think he did one for Desperado, um, but he certainly did one for Once Upon a Time. And he, did all, he, he, really, he really leaned in to this, uh, the DVD special features, right? The behind the scenes, the making ofs and all that. And, and um, he has a great, you know, being from Texas and, and living in Austin for as long as I did and reading Rebel Without a Crew coming up as a young, uh, you know, a, a young filmmaker, um, a, a young film grommy, as you, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always had a, a, a sort of a layman's tongue in explaining film and making it and making you really feel like anyone could do it mm. you know one of my favorite my favorite phrases that he he introduced to me that i still use today is um using technology to move at the speed of thought yeah, that's great and here we are doing a podcast yep. a couple mics my laptop you know i don't even need as much stuff as i have i could do even less yeah um, and so I, I'm going to go with Once Upon a Time in Mexico just cool. because that when I saw that film, I, I went out and, and bootlegged a copy of um, Adobe uh, um, Adobe Premiere. Mm-hmm. I had a little projector in my house. I, I was starting it was right, right when I was starting to really get into like doing shorts that I would mm-hmm. write, direct, sometimes act in, shoot, cut, score, everything in between. Um, so that I think that one. I'm, cool. Well, for me, I remember again, kind of in the. You know, not too long after the after the Amadeus thing, when I was a sophomore in college at the University of Georgia. You fan of Georgia, hey? <laughs> uh, well, I was a, I went there for acting, and they have a drama department. They didn't have a film school at the time, although they do have a film academy or something now. It's an offshoot of that, and they had a journalism department. So you're either a broadcaster because CNN's out based out of Atlanta, right? Or you were an actor thespian. Um, but there was no real film school. But all our be friends. <laughs> but all our all our professors were obviously you know film fans, and, and right. some of them were in the film business as well as being stage actors and whatnot. So anyway, so I saw Touch of Evil by Orson Welles, which we were chatting about on Twitter one of the times, and that there's an opening sequence there. Uh, that's it's it was one of the longest 
single shot sequences yeah, right. that to that date definitely existed. Um, and it's this opening credit. So, uh, again, I, I'm a sophomore in college. So what am I? Maybe 20 years old, somewhere in that range. And so if I remember correctly, it starts up really high, like on a jib, you know, it's like 40 feet up. Right. Then it comes down, it follows a car, then it goes around a corner, then it goes into a building. And I didn't know anything about film. So I'm like, how did they do that? Right. How do you, how do you accomplish that? And, but luckily I was in drama slash film school and eventually learned how they did it. So, but that got me thinking outside of the box because I, you, you can't just be an audience member because no. your brain automatically goes, that's not possible. It's like when you watch, um, I'm sure it's highly influenced, but, um, the opening for Halloween. Yeah. That, that was one of the earliest usage of what we now know as a study cam. It yeah. It's called a glide cam then. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the long steady can shot in Goodfellas, mm-hmm. which is referenced um, in, in Swingers. Yep. There are these certain moments where you are taken out of the story, but not in a bad way. Yeah, exactly. And, though, and in those moments, if yeah. you're keen to it, yep. you really start to look at the film as a craft yep. and not just two hours of not thinking about your homework or your exactly. family or whatever. Yeah, so I actually I did that. I I did a shot very similar to that in Thailand. We shot a movie called Sunny, which is a Korean movie uh-huh. about the Vietnam War, and it started with this guy. It picture this giant mountain with the with uh, you know um, foxholes and guns and artillery and right. everything. So and a helicopter on top. So basically, what we did was we had a Steadicam guy on his knees, like crab walking, you know, uh, with his full Steadicam gear. Runs across the entire battlefield, explosions, people getting shot. Runs up this mountain. He's going through different trenches and stuff. It's all timed out. It's rehearsed for like three days. Then he gets on a jib. So he he jumps on he jumps on the crane. That's insane. Puts his you know puts his harness on. Goes up with the crane. That crane takes him up to another level, about forty feet. Puts him on a platform again, running with the steady cam, and then gets on a helicopter and does an aerial shot. That is nuts. One fucking take. How many times did you do it? Uh, I think we did it three times. The reset was crazy. Cause oh, of course. Because you're blowing up stuff. So you got to reset it. it. But so, even the fact that you were able to get it in three takes, that's yeah. nuts. That's and, great. And, um, I wonder, because I, I haven't seen 1917 yet, but yeah. there is a shot that feels very much like what you're talking about. Yeah. That uh, I wonder if they that director watched Sonny and got a little maybe because the director of Sonny is a his name is Junik Lee he's he's one of the most famous directors in Korea so it's very possible very cool all right next question do you think there's a benefit of having a movie or television show that is less scored and more of a soundtrack I believe it depends on the movie but yes definitely like um, if you're if you're going because when I think sound when I think score I think Danny Elfman Hans Zimmer right. So if you're if you're doing fantasy and all that stuff, I think it's much better to have a score. But sure. if you're doing Baby Driver or a Tarantino film, right? It's all soundtrack, man. Because because a song again evokes a certain feeling in you. You know, when you're watching Pulp Fiction and Son of a Preacher Man comes on, you can't escape that feeling that that gives you. And if that was a score just playing there, that scene would have sucked, right? Right. So. I, I think there's definitely certain films that uh, soundtrack uh, could could overplay a score for sure and be better in most instances. Right. Um, but songs are expensive, man. So. Well, listen, uh, my answer is going to be – it might seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but it's not. It's um, Service the Story. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it, does it call for it? I had I worked on a film once that I won't name, where uh, the director had this wild hair about casting this rap group mm. from Texas mm-hmm. uh, to to score this thing that didn't fit. Yeah. And now I, you know, uh, <laughs> the logic behind it was was interesting. He was sort of referencing The Graduate, which you saw Simon Garfunkel, right? Mm-hmm. Um. But, but because the graduate was so of the time mm-hmm. and um, was very not just of the time but of the coming of age of the time yeah to have a band that was also of a coming age of the time seemed to really fit right yeah uh, Mrs. Robinson is used speaking of Tarantino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood briefly when mm-hmm. Brad, Pitt's, Brad Pitt's character sees what we then later on come to know as an underage girl yeah because if you reference the graduate, it's right. an older woman seducing a younger man, right? Yep. This is playing the juxtaposition of that. So, service story, man. Like, does it yeah. call for it? Like, does it does it enhance your story? Yeah. Or is it just some thing? It's like the single shot takes, right? Yep. Does it enhance your story, or is yep. it just something you want to do so you can brag at your buddy at the woods? Yeah. Having a drink, drinking your skinny jeans and your faded shitty <laughs> hat that you got from Goodwill. Like, what are you doing here? Are you doing yeah. a film? Right. Are you servicing your film, or are you just servicing your ego? So, right. I, I I can also speak from the director's point of view in that sometimes I. Sometimes I hear a song and it strikes me and I get such a visual from it that I want to use it. Right. But then I get into my project and I'm like, eh, it just doesn't fit. It, not for this project. It, but And sometimes it's the opposite. Like in Incantation, we had a song called Bloody Red Roses that inspired right. the actual script. We ended up getting permission to use. And it's, it's not – It's perfect. It's perfect. And it's not only part of the soundtrack, but it's also part of the score. They, they and, scored with it. And you couldn't imagine that movie without I it. I know, exactly. And so, again, service your story. That's it. Everything that we do from the creative end to the logistical end yep. is to service the story. Absolutely. Okay. And that doesn't mean free reign and an open checkbook yeah. or, or unlimited time. You're not fucking Kubrick, <laughs> but it is all to service the story because otherwise, yeah. what the hell are we doing? Exactly. Are there genres of movies or TV shows that you weren't into that now you feel like you can watch because you have a different point of view? Yes. Uh, yes, there are. The musical. Really, you weren't into that? No, I was never into musicals. I couldn't. I couldn't stand them. If a if a if a movie. You know, if, if I knew right away it was a musical, I was like, oh, God, I can't do this. So after the second song, I was, I was toned, toned out, you right. know, tuned out. Um, but now, you know, there's so many good musicals. I have a much better appreciation for them. I, I, I have learned that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a specific style now. So uh, it's not as jarring that there's a song when people are dancing in the middle of the street that doesn't really make sense in real right. life. La La Land. <laughs> La La Land, exactly. So I've come to appreciate them um, and, and not be so uh, turned away by them. I would say uh, I'm not a huge fan of sad bastard movies. Mm-hmm. So I've not seen Marriage Story. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's seen, well, I'm sure it's great, but I'm not a fan of sad bastard music. By movies. the way, let me just say right now, Adam fucking Driver better get the Oscar for Marriage Story. Drop mic. End story. Okay, well, he might be offset by his portrayal as Ben Kenobi. Or Ben Soto. <laughs> Whatever. I didn't watch that last movie. So <laughs> Try twice. Um, so, uh, this will this will get a, a rise out of my sister, but um, I, I cannot stand Harold and Maude. Mm. I can't watch that movie. Yeah. I've tried many times. She loves Harold and Maude. Yeah. Loves it. Yeah. We watched it like 50 times in a row. Right. Sound of Music. 
Yeah. Talk about music. Watch yeah. That's not sad bastard music. It's just some things. Yeah. Um, so no genre specific, but there are some movies that I just haven't come around on yet. But listen, I got time. Yeah. I'm not even old enough to work on Star Wars yet. So you know what? <laughs> That's right. That's plenty of time for me to change my mind. That's right. You talk about a lot of horror films on your podcast. What are some of your happiest, least scary movies? I'm not going to answer that question. Here's what I'm going to do. You can answer that question. Okay. I'm going to tell you about one of my happiest memories about a scary film. Okay. So when we were young, um, Stephen King's It played on ABC. Ooh, Tim so, Curry. Tim, yeah, Tim Curry was Pennywise the Clown. Anyway, so uh, we, we watched it, my sister and I, and um, she got quite scared. Mm. And uh, yeah, I was a little older than her, so I wasn't scared. I mean, I liked it. was appropriately scared. She was frightened. Yeah. And so I just remember, like, she made me sort of, like, stay in her room with her that night and mm -hmm. make sure she fell asleep and made sure clowns didn't get her. And, um, yeah. you know, as, as two strong-headed, strong-willed siblings often do, we sometimes are at odds with one another. But uh, that's a very happy memory for me now mm -hmm. because it was really an opportunity for me as a big brother to watch over my youngest sister, even if it was just over, you know, to make sure... An imaginary clown didn't get her at, as she slept, which uh, went on to inspire many Hot Topic shirts uh, for generations to come. But as, at the time, it was a brand new concept. Uh, can't sleep, clowns will eat me. Ah, oh, that's a very sweet story. So I'm going to also put a little twist on my answer. An Oliver twist? Yeah, an Oliver twist. More porridge, sir. My answer is... Um, I have a movie that was done twice, and I like both the original and the remake, that is supposed to be a happy movie. And it is a very happy movie. I have great memories about it, but it's also a kind of a scary movie. And that is... Harold and Maude. <laughs> Harold and Maude. No. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, or Charlie oh, and the Chocolate yeah. Factory. Okay. So both versions, the Gene Wilder version and the Tim Burton version... Um, and as a fan of Roald Dahl, I've read uh, most of his stories, and I've read those books as well. And that's kind of that's very Roald Dahl. Like it's it, he, instead of a, uh, he's very much a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, like okay. his his stories are often fairy tales and that kind of thing. But there's some really dark, sinister stuff going on there. And if you read um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka. Um, it's got a very uh, Brothers Grimm kind of background to yeah, it. I okay. mean, it, it's it's frightening. And then the portrayals, of course, by Gene Wilder and and, and Johnny Depp, uh, just really bring it home. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like a it's it's creepy, you know. It's, it's very creepy. It's, it's very unsettling. Yeah, it's unsettling. Unnerving. Even. Yeah, because you got this kind of crazy old man, and he's dealing with kids, and he's definitely off his rocker, and the, and he'll and he's sort of bipolar, and he goes back and forth between being like, "Oh, you're so sweet, level, adorable," I'm and murder you, and I'm gonna kill you all and bake you into chocolate fudge or whatever. He's so. kind of like the witch from Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but that, but but again, it's a very happy movie. Everyone has fond memories of both of those movies, and there's like, man, that's such a great movie. But yeah, it's it's scary too. So. Super cool, super cool. Well, listen, um, that's all our questions. Thank you, my sister, for such a thank you a battery of amazing questions. And I know Hold you up. guys are all thinking, uh, when are we going to get to the results of the action movie mm. tournament? Can, can I make a prediction? Uh, yes, you can. I I think that Terminator Two is going to go against Max Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road, and Terminator Two is going to win. Oh, calling a shot now. 
All right, so we have the results of our first round of our tournament. Man, some of these are close. Mm. In the Dave brackets, we had Terminator 2 versus Die Hard. Mm. Classic versus classic. Mm, Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, head-to-head. Yep. And the results are in, and... Keeping with your your prediction, the prophecy of Jude. Which I said this when this poll first you came out, like a week ago. You didn't know when you said that because no. we just added them up. Fifty-one to thirty-six, Terminator Two advances. Get me to the chopper. Um, now this is a little bit of a different one because I, uh, you know, I had not seen Ongbok. Oh, you have gosh, a little great. bit of a backstory with that. Yes, echoing kind of what I had said because we talked about this before with the idea of the of the hiding of the gold inside of these religious yeah. monuments and spiritual monuments and yeah. you know a marauders coming and cutting the heads off it's mm-hmm. in the gold and sort of being the nexus of the story yeah uh going up against old boy oh which is a great film as well different in a sense but two classics from the orient the thais versus koreans yes yeah, so two classics coming from uh the east so you very close mm. uh but Ungbok advances thirty-three to thirty-two. Good job, Tony. Actually, closer than I thought because some of the early the early votes were in favor of uh, well, they were massively in favor of Ungbok, and then mm-hmm. Old Boy made a little bit of a resurgence, but not just not enough. So, yeah. uh, advancing in the first round is Terminator Two and Ungbok. Sweet. So, Jude, I don't know if you uh, have an opportunity to last, listen to last week's episode or if you know who the next round is, but the next round in the Grand House Podcast Real Action Hero Tournament is in the Dave bracket. Enter the Dragon, Ooh, Bruce Lee, yeah, versus Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. Ooh. And then in the Matt bracket, we have uh, Valhalla Rising mm-hmm. by the director of Drive mm-hmm. um, and Predator, another Ooh. Arnold. Ooh. Just savage films. Yes, great. Uh, another tough round. It's really hard to say. I'll make a prediction. If okay, you yes. I love predictions. Okay, so, you know, obviously on the Enter the Dragon side, that's a classic. It's one of Bruce Lee's greatest, if not his greatest um, but I'm going to go with uh, Kill Bill on that s- simply because that that film, Kill Bill 1 and 2, Kill Bill 2 more so, but Kill Bill 1 and 2 sort of define that era. It's more of our generation. True. And, you know, you got Uma Thurman and Lucy Liu and an amazing cast on top of kick-ass martial arts. And it's right. an homage to Bruce Lee. She's wearing the yellow and black stripes and the whole thing. And it's just... I think it's just so well done. Like, if you watch Enter the Dragon, it's all about Bruce and his his capabilities, um, but not necessarily story and production value. Sure. But if you watch Kill Bill, it's everything you want in a cinematic experience, plus those things. I could not disagree with you. What do you think on the other on the map bracket? Uh, uh, Valhalla Rising versus Predator. I, again. Both great movies, but Predator is just ingrained in your psyche. It's probably one of the greatest. Well, it's on this bracket for a reason. One of the right. greatest classic action movies of all time. It's Arnold at its prime. It's Carl Weathers. It's the Predator who is an such an iconic villain slash creature that has defined cinema. So I'm going to have to go with Predator on that one. Well, very cool. Well, at the end of the day, it's not really just up to us. It's up to our fans. Vote. You listeners out there, this is the most important vote you can do this year. That's right. Is Mystic Jude's prediction going to come correct? Is this going to be Terminator 2? We, we will only find out if you participate. And we want to thank you for all your participation so far. As always, come Monday, I will put the uh, the polls up. You can listen to this episode on Monday. You My can polls vote. up right now. <laughs> 
Uh, we cut that out. <laughs> and uh, if you want any more uncensored hot takes from Jude, feel free to listen in week after week. We're going to be stuck in Atlanta for quite a while. Sweet. So there's nothing to do but talk about film and mm-hmm. make appropriate jokes. So thank you guys once again. We appreciate all your support. And again, another reminder, uh, we still have – I brought some with me so I can mail them from here – of our Grindhouse Krampus Blend mm-hmm. collaboration with Black Heart Coffee. And uh, before we go, I want to do one other thing. I want to give back. Mm. But by highlighting an independent hip-hop artist mm. who also loves horror. Awesome. His name is Polterdice OD. You can find his YouTube channel. He has done some really super kick-ass, like, original songs centered around classic horror films. That's I'm going to play awesome. a short clip from his song based on the movie Phantasm oh. called The Tall Man. Love it. Oh, don't, don't get involved then. Try and take a shotgun to the tall man. Well, his shotgun's a tall can. Conjures a black hole and get your fucking walls in. I'm so deadly, Reggie. Not so friendly, Reggie. I am death directly, Reggie. I will fucking end this, Reggie. Because when the game is finished, that's when you die. A part of me of being every tear that you cry. Please check out Polterdice OD. Uh, he is awesome. He's on the YouTubes. You can DM me if you can't find him. He also has an Instagram, Polterdice underscore OD, or Facebook.com, Polterdice OD. Hoping to give him a little love. Listen to The Tall Man. Let us know what you think. Remember to comment, to subscribe to our Instagrams at Grindhouse Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Davoscuro. You can follow Jude at Jude S. Walco on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Follow his progress as he does Shark Island, as he makes the incantation too, maybe. As he lets the me, inclination. The inclination as he lets me do a demonic voice for Shark and Shark Island. Mm-hmm. Lots of cool stuff coming down the pike mm-hmm. for Jude and Dave. This has been the Grindhouse Podcast. Adios. Peace out. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the 1313 Mockingbird Lane Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast or listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify.